0: Father, I thank you for every person that's here. Lord, we come today, God, with a great expectation that you're going to speak to us. And so, Lord, we thank you for your anointing. We thank you for your presence in the house today. Father, if there's any hindrance that might uh, interfere or confuse us from receiving what you have for us today, uh, Lord, we just rebuke that in Jesus' name. And, Lord, we thank you for an open heaven here today. God, we declare that we're hungry. We declare that we desire to hear from you. And we just believe today that you have the ability to speak to us and to alter our lives in a powerful way It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, as you just heard Pastor Tommy say, next weekend for three services, we're going to be doing our Christmas services, and then the following two Sundays uh, for Christmas and New Year's we won't be here. And so what that means is this, is that uh, our next traditional service will not be until January the 8th. In other words, the next time we gather will be that day. So I say that because of this, in, in anticipation of knowing that today would probably be my real last opportunity to give you, uh, you know, quote unquote, official message, I've really been praying, just asking God, okay, God, is there anything that you want to say to the people, is there anything you want to say to us that you want to kind of linger in the air that you want us to take note of so we can just kind of focus on for the next few weeks? And, and as I prayed, I've landed on the, just basically a, a portion of scripture that comes out of the Gospel of Luke. And before we read it, let me just say this, kind of to give you the spirit behind what we're going to talk about today. Uh, in my experience, most Christians uh, are more comfortable with spiritual maintenance than they are spiritual growth. And I think a lot of times we maintain, uh, try to maintain where we're at with Jesus instead of, instead of maybe believing that there's something more that he has for us. And so let me just tell you this, in my opinion, one of the greatest gifts that God has given us is our ability to grow our ability to change, our ability to be transformed. And so I think in like manner, one of the greatest gifts we can give back to God is to respond to Him by growing. Amen? And so with that spirit, I want to I just kind of hop in. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to unpack some things. Uh, I got really three main points I want to give you today. Uh, you know, they may sound, I, I think, just kind of normal everyday church talk in a way, but I believe we make room, the Holy Spirit will speak to us in a deep way. Amen? All right, so let's pick it up in verse 5. It says, In the time of Herod, uh, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zachariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. It says his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So if I can pause there for a moment, basically what uh, you need to know is there was 24 sections or 24 divisions of priests during this time period, and and what Luke is referring to is basically that at this point in time the Zechariah's uh, you know, priestly division was kind of up, if you will, to serve for a week in the temple. And it says this in verse six. It's It says, both of them, talking about Zachariah and Elizabeth, were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Are you following me? So the point that Luke is trying to make here is just trying to bring our attention to the fact that in the Jewish culture, if a woman was barren or if she was childless, most of the time it was viewed that God was not pleased with her and that God's favor was not on her. And so obviously these, uh, this elderly couple has spent years with that shame hanging over their head. So it says in verse 8, it says, Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot. Somebody say By lot says, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, at face value, that looks like that's something he did on a regular basis. But when you study Jewish history, you'll find out that a priest uh, might have the opportunity to do this at one time one point his entire life and so what Luke is getting guys he's trying to bring the audience us in to let us know that what we're about to read was actually a supernatural setup it was actually a divine appointment for God from God for Zechariah. So watch what happens. It says in verse 10, it says, And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. It says, Then, after those guys were worshiping, after those guys were praying, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. In other words, that thing that you and your wife have been praying about for so long, man, God's heard, and now I I'm here, right? Then he says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. Now remember uh, real quick what John, uh, John actually means. John means this. It means that the Lord has been gracious or the Lord has shown favor. So in other words, that thing that your wife has been carrying for all these years, buddy, I'm going to name your kid to show you that it's no more. I love God, right? Verse 14 says this. says, he will be a joy and delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. Uh, Other translations use the word liquor. And it says, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before the Lord, Stomach Jesus, and the Spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In other words, what it's saying is, is this is going to come he's going to preach truth and it's going to turn people back to right living and then it says in verse 18 Zachariah asked the angel how can I be sure of this I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years did you notice how he called himself old and not his wife I'm just saying all right (laughs) I noticed that this morning he was smart verse 19 it says the angel said to him I am Gabriel I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news now, obviously, there's more to the story, but we're going to stop there. Um, I, I think all of what we just read is amazing. Now, but here's what I want to focus on. A few months ago, Uh, I was reading this passage, and while I was reading this passage, there were three things that just jumped out at me, uh, all of which came from what Gabriel said about John. And so uh, if we can hit the rewind button, I'm going to read basically starting at verse 14 through 17 again, and I'm going to show you the three things that we're going to turn our attention to today and we're going to focus on. All right, here we go. Luke chapter 1, verse 14, Gabriel talking. It says he'll be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. In my opinion, that speaks directly to John's character. It's the type of person he's going to be. It says he is never to take wine or other uh, fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. In my opinion, that speaks to his consecration. And then it says, He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And last, as you can see, number three, I think that speaks to his calling. Now, let this just, if I can kind of set up where we're going today. All in all, there are 62 verses in the Bible that talk about John the Baptist. While that might sound like a whole lot, uh, we, I think we got to remember that most of those scriptures are repetition in nature because a uh, majority of them come from the Gospels, so they're just kind of repeating the same stories, which means we really only have this select, uh, if you will, snapshot of John's life, right? Like, that's all that's been given to us. Now, I don't know about you, but even though uh, we only have, we'll call quote-unquote, snapshots of this guy's life... There's enough, at least in my opinion, uh, that makes me greatly admire this man. Like, I think he's amazing, okay? For starters, the thing that probably sticks out to me the most about him is his courage. Like, if you know anything about John the Baptist, this dude was bold as a lion, now, because of this boldness, we know that he didn't waste words. He didn't run around trying to flatter people's egos. He didn't pamper or cater to people's emotions. He didn't try to make them feel you know, better about themselves. He simply gave them what they needed, and that was the truth. So I for one love this about him because he wasn't interested in engaging in some popularity contest like so many preachers we see today. He wasn't trying to become, you know, the president of the latest up and coming social club. Like he wasn't interested in all that. Like it didn't matter if the person in front of him was royalty, if they were religious hierarchy, if they were middle class, wrong side of the track. To John, truth was truth, sin was sin, and repentance was repentance. Things were really just crystal clear to him, and he was going to tell you about it if you liked it or not. My kind of guy, right? So for this reason alone, uh, you know, as we could expect, there was people who loved him and there was people that hated him, right? In fact, we know from the Bible that one person hated him so much, uh, you know, she saw to it that his head was removed from his shoulders and put on a silver platter. You know, if you talk about being offended with what somebody preaches, that's it, Right? Now from a cultural perspective, John didn't have much uh, going for him either. in other words he didn't have some you know attractive public persona he didn't have a fancy house he didn't have a pretty camel you know this guy didn't wear the latest fashion he didn't eat the right things he didn't have a flashy marketing team behind him supporting him you know he wasn't on a single town committee and he didn't work at a trendy church and believe it or not this guy didn't even have a social media account <laughs> right like you didn't have it watch this. This one what you hear. Yet according to theologians, theologians, John's ministry on the outskirts of the town of, of Bethany, right, they, he still reached more than a million people. That's incredible, right? Now, how did that happen? Here's the point I want to make from this. That in spite of what all uh, would maybe perceive or say about John's shortcomings or his lack of, of the things that he needs to have to be successful, even though John didn't have all of that, what he did have, once again, was plenty of character, a lifestyle of consecration, and a genuine call of God that was burning in his heart to prepare the way of the Lord. Right, And so much so that this guy was so solid in those things, Jesus actually said this about him in Matthew 11. Says, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. Says, What kind of man did you go into the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people with expensive clothes live in palaces. Says, Were you looking for a prophet? Yes, and he is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer that say, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. Watch this, verse 11, whole reason we're reading this. I tell you the truth, all of who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because this dude was solid in his character, solid in his consecration, and solid in his calling. So much so that Jesus literally said that no man has ever lived as greater than John. Now, to put that in perspective of his audience... Jesus was saying this, that he was greater than Abraham, the father of their faith. That he was greater than Moses, their great deliverer and lawgiver, right? He was greater than Samuel, their mighty prophet, or uh, King David, their victorious warrior, right? Or, Or Solomon in all his wisdom, or Daniel in all of his brilliance. That literally, he was saying that not a single person that's ever lived is greater than John. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty doggone good compliment. Amen? Okay, so with that said, let's shift gears, because if you're... Anything like me and you're sitting there, you might be thinking, okay, man, that's cool, all that about John the Baptist, but what in the world does this have to do with me? Great question. Okay, here's what I want to tell you today, and here's what I think God wants us to consider is I think if we kind of like pull all this in together, that even though our parents may not be from some ancient, you know, Jewish, uh, you know, priesthood lineage like John's, or maybe you know, the the archangel Gabriel didn't, you know, appear to your father, you know, before you were born to tell him, you know, how magnificent you were going to be like he did with John, or you know, even though that uh, none of us were probably filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb like John, and even though none of us were you know, uh, called to be a forerunner of the first coming Christ like John, guess what, Here, here's the thing, is that God is still just as concerned about our character, I'm repeating it for a reason, consecration and calling as he was with John. In other words, he is just as interested in coming alongside of you by the power of the Holy Spirit, right, to help you grow, to help you develop and mature in each of those areas. Once again, he's not coming alongside of you to help you maintain. He's coming alongside of you to help you to grow. Amen? So why would God want to do that? This might be an unusual way to put this, but I think uh, more than likely every single person in this room Basically, we are, we are currently either resembling an iceberg, a sinkhole, or possibly both in these three areas. Here's what I mean by that. When it comes to an iceberg, I'm sure most of us are aware of this, that we typically only see about 10% of it, right? That's what they tell us. Because the vast majority or the 90% of the iceberg uh, you know, often remains underwater and it's unne- uh, you know, unseen beneath the surface. In other words, it's under the waterline so we can't see it. Now, in my mind, that should tell us that while we may be, you know, grateful where we're currently at with Jesus, spiritually speaking, there's still pieces of our character, pieces of our consecration, and pieces of our calling that are still beneath the surface that's waiting to emerge, that's waiting to be revealed, that's waiting to rise as we follow and surrender to Jesus. In other words, who you are today, there's more to you, baby, right? Like, come on, like Jesus has more for you. Hopefully you hear that in an encouraging way. So, but when it comes to a sinkhole, obviously that's not as positive, right? I'm sure most of us have seen a picture or video at some point. I, I saw one the other day on YouTube, a Corvette museum that literally the ground opened up and swallowed a bunch of old classic Corvettes, right? So anyways, they had on video, it was awesome. Here's what happens though, some geographical location endures the season of drought uh, the, the underground streams that are in that area begin to dry up, which ultimately causes the ground to lose its, its underlying support, and it gives away. In other words, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, like everything in that area just caves in, just bloomed, right? Creating this massive hole in the ground, and it swallows up anything that was above it, right? So we see automobiles, roads, sidewalks. I've even seen buildings fall into sinkholes. So spiritually speaking, I believe it is possible for us to have uh, these underlining, dry, unhealthy, unproductive areas in our character, in our consecration, in our calling. And if we choose to continue to ignore them, they have the potential to collapse the ground we've been walking on, causing us to damage not only our own lives, but also the lives of others around us. So on one hand, we go, the iceberg, oh, that's pretty cool. That's neat. That's neat. You know, the sinkhole, well, that's not so exciting. In fact, that's pretty sobering. But the reality is, I think if, we're, if we want to admit it or not, most of us in this room uh, have both going on in our lives, right? And the reason is, and it's okay, it's because we're still a work in progress, but it's up to us what we do with it. Do we maintain or do we allow the Holy Spirit to change us? right so listen on one hand i believe that jesus has tried to come alongside of every one of us and if you will for lack of a better term you know push us upward and forward so that more than 10% of who he's called us to be will come to the surface right but on the other hand i believe he's trying to get really intentional, really honest in our lives so he can confront and he can deal with our old fleshly, old carnal ways, old carnal habits so that the holes inside of us can be filled uh, so they won't damage us, damage our families, and ultimately damage his reputation. So once again, on one hand, it's called spiritual growth, but it's also called the sanctification process that if you're born again, you should be actively in. Amen? All right, so with all that in mind, I want to dive into those three areas. I want us to talk about character, consecration, and calling. But I want us to do so through the eyes of John the Baptist. I want to use him as an example for us to learn from. So I'm going to go ahead and forewarn you. It's going to be a little different than what you what you might typically think we're going to say. So if you can, lean in and just grab a hold of it. Because because my hope is is that we're going to see a little part of who we really are. In other words, most of us in this room, including myself, we, we live behind... Facades, we live behind the opinions of others, but there's some things that are inside of us that, that God wants to shine His light on, and, and if we'll let Him, He will. Amen? So let's, let's let Him do that today. All right, so the first area of John's life wants to dive into, like I said earlier, is his character. Now, as I also mentioned, even though John didn't necessarily have everything this world would say uh, uh, you know, a person must have to be successful. When this dude stepped on the scene to begin to preach his fiery message, repent for the kingdom of God's at hand, the multitudes flocked to hear him. Like, we can't miss that, right? And not only did they flock to hear him, but these people responded to his message by repenting of their sins and by getting baptized as a sign of forgiveness of their sins. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how long John's ministry lasted, uh, but there's no doubt, we'll call it this, that, that, a, that a shift of his influence, it, it came. It clearly happened, and it happened one day when this man named Jesus just walked by. So John 1.29 says this. It says, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, A man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptized with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And if you read the following verses, it goes on to say this. Here's how I knew he was the Messiah. Because when I was in the desert, God spoke to me and said, the guy that you see, get baptized and come up, and the Holy Spirit comes and descends on him, remains, and remains, that's him. So that's what he says. Skip down to John chapter 1, verse 35. It says this, the following day, meaning the day after the one we just read in verse 29, John was standing with his two disciples, and Jesus walked by again, right? And John looked at him and declared, look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Watch this. You're about to see what kind of character this man had. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus, meaning in that instant, in that moment, they shifted their affection. They transferred their commitment from John to Jesus instantly. Now, listen, on surface level, I think it's easy to go, okay, John, what's the big deal, man? It's just two guys. But if you keep reading the scripture, you find out it didn't stop at two. From the world's perspective, we could say from the point when Jesus walked by, John's approval ratings and his popularity rankings, man, they took a serious nosedive, nose right? Like his book fell off the bestseller list. His song was number, number one on the charts, right? His clientele moved something bigger and better. And man, this man's bank account went into the red. Are you kind of getting the point? In other words, everything turned, Okay. Now, in short, John was losing more than his influence. What he was really losing when Jesus walked by, it was his job. I'm trying to make this personal for us, right? So, so my man literally went, and if you know this name, you'll understand what I mean, but he literally went from leading uh Reinhardt Bunky-like mass evangelism crusades with like a sea of people, right, to sharing, a, uh, to sharing basically at a small group on the side of a riverbank overnight. So thing, he went from this mass crowd of people preaching, being the guy, okay? Like, he was the guy getting the YouTube hits, right? And, and then, literally, to the next week, being like, okay, who brought the snacks? <laughs> right? I, I got chocolate-covered grasshoppers. Anybody want some? <laughs> like, that? are you seeing this? Yeah. yeah. So, listen, things shifted so much, this happened two chapters later. John 3. It says, so John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as Messiah is also baptizing people, and everybody, somebody say everybody. Y'all know what everybody means? It means everybody, right? Everybody. In other words, everybody that used to be here is going to him instead of coming to us. Come on, attempt to let this sink in. I, I want to make this personal. Um, so whatever, whatever like, field that you're in, imagine that you are like at the top of the game. Like nobody's doing it better. Nobody's more successful than you. Are you, are you hearing me? Whatever you do, like you're it, right? And, uh, and then out of nowhere, somebody else just kind of pops on the scene and everybody forgets you exist And then they all start following him or her. So here's the question. If you were in John's shoes, how do you think that would have made you feel? Listen, I don't know about you, but if I was going to be honest, I typically am to a fault, um, because I'm such a driven person, I think this would have probably, like if that was me, this would have probably caused more unhealthy, sinkhole thoughts and emotions rise up in me than I would ever care to admit. Like I'm just like, man, okay. like, Lord, what, what, am, what amount of pride would that expose in my life? Like how much of a failure would I feel like? How much shame would I heap upon myself? How rejected would I feel? How many insecurities would that bring to the surface? Oh, hear me. I'm just naming a few, right? Like, I'm just trying to get real. Like, like what, what, what ugliness would that bring out of me, right? It's almost like we need a bunch of garlic. You enjoy it in the moment, but you really stink later, right? <laughs> and, and so, like, what would come out of your, your spiritual pores later, right, if that happened to you? But but here's the cool part, is, is we know biblically, John didn't respond like many of us would. He didn't respond like I would, okay? Look at the next verse. It says this in verse 27. It says, John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for Him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride. That is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. In other words, as other translations say, he must increase and I must decrease. Talk about being a man of character. Listen, in my opinion, John's character was clearly at such a mature place, not only allowed him to take this posture of humility, but allowed him to live with an open hand. Right? Like it reveals, in my opinion, the incredible amount of spiritual security. Y'all hear this the spiritual security and the emotional stability that this man walked in. So, if there's a verse I can maybe point that kind of goes, "Hey, this is in the Old Testament, and it could describe John." It would be Proverbs ten nine. It says, "Whoever walks in integrity and with moral character walks securely." That's John. So, listen, in light of what we're seeing in John's life, like I, I don't, I know we don't like to talk about this a whole lot, but but when when things are connected to our ego, when they're connected to our bank account our perceived success with our social standing or we'll say our desire to be right or anything else that we believe has the ability to benefit us, when that stuff starts to get threatened, the last thing that you and I typically want to do is decrease while the other fellow increases. Can I hear an amen on that? So in other words, like we would, we would much rather rejoice while the other fellow is mourning than to mourn while the other fellow's rejoicing, right? It's like my grandmother used to say, I'm a much better winner than I am a loser. <laughs> Amen. So listen, I think as embarrassing it might be for us if we actually sat down with God and let God expose some things and we had to get him and go, okay, here's what I see in me, how that can be kind of embarrassing. Uh, I, I believe, and I hope you see this, that all that does is reveal the dark places in our character. The dark pieces in our character. In other words, it, it reveals the sinkhole uh, where we desperately need Jesus to come fill us. Yeah. Right. So, on that note, listen to Philippians one eleven, please, because this is what God desires to do for us. It says, "May you always what." Say it loud. Oh, we'll, we'll try it again. It's okay. It's, it's okay. It's okay. We're not in a locker room. All right. May you always what. Yeah. Yes, be filled with the fruit of your salvation, which is what? The righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. How does he want to fill you? It's with righteous character. Isn't it amazing how often in life we feel empty and we ask him to fill us with all kinds of other things? We think money will fill it, a new something will fill it, right? A new purse, a new car, a new house, a new wardrobe, right? A new friend, right? Uh, A dinner somewhere at a nice place. We try to fill ourselves with so many things, right? And Jesus is saying flat out right here or Paul is, that that basically the only thing that's really going to fill you is righteous character from Jesus. Why? Watch this. I love the outcome because all that other stuff, all it does is bring attention to ourselves but it says, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. All right. so with all that in mind if you could take everything I just said like what could potentially, what potentially could God speak to you over the next few weeks if you begin to ask him, okay, God, what are some areas of my character that you would like to change? Like, what, what are some sinkhole spots in my life that you want to feel? Like, if we actually got intentional about that, once again, not, not going, okay, I'm going to spiritually maintain, but I want to spiritually grow, what would happen if we begin to lean into that and say, God, would you please speak to me there? I think he'll talk to us. Amen. So listen, if you're sitting here curious and you're wondering what, that, what the iceberg looks like in this area, it, it looks exactly like the fruit of the Spirit. That's what's really the 90% that's beneath the surface. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness, and it's self-control. It's all those things that Jesus stamped and engraved on your born-again spirit when you got saved. He's wanting to bring that to the surface. He just needs you to work with him so he can do it. Amen? All right, the second area of John's life I want to dive into is consecration. Now, let me read a verse really quick to you. Psalms 4.3 Four three says this, you can be sure of this, the Lord sets apart the godly for himself. The word set apart there means consecration, that God consecrates the godly for himself. The, the Bible says a whole, whole, whole lot about what it means to be consecrated or what it means to be set apart. And I want you to know today that John the Baptist was clearly that, like he was clearly set apart. The reality of him being baptized in the Holy Spirit while he was still in his mother's womb kind of settles it in my opinion. Right, like, did it happen to you? Okay, enough said. All right, it didn't happen to me either. All right, so I just think this, that even though that's certainly an unusual and amazing occurrence, uh, actually, the thing I want to highlight is a completely different area of John's life that I think gives proof to his consecration. And I hope you hear me on this. It's super simple, but I think it reflects every day in our lives because because I let me say it this way: I think a lot of us view consecration on on basically. Um, you, you know, let me say it this way. There's churches talk about, you know, how long your hair is, how long your dress is. Do you have makeup on your face? Are you wearing jewelry? Uh, you know, the, the South has a, a version of it. The North has a version of it. Like we view consecration in all these different ways and that's fine. But, but I want to show it to you in a different way that I think actually gives proof in our everyday walking around life and we don't even realize it. And that's this. is that I believe consecrated people like John know exactly who they are and who they are not. They know who they are, and they know who they are not. So to the point, once again, I think John definitely understood this. And, and I think uh, because he understood this, he didn't operate and he didn't function out of uh, you know sinkhole thinking and, uh, you know, or deficiency in this area. So once again, if I can bring you back to the story of John, like we mentioned previously, when this guy stepped on the scene, like it got a lot of people's attention right? So much so that the entire Jewish community, uh, in essence, you know, turned their back, right? Uh, you know, let me say they turned their back and they turned their attention away from the traditional Jewish synagogue and they turned it to this wild, unorthodox preacher in the deserts. Like they left the church and they went to the field, right? They went to the desert. And so, As we've also mentioned, this drew a lot of attention, drew a lot of applause, and it also drew its fair share of criticism from the region as well. Am I making sense? Okay. So in my opinion, the applause that John received when all those people started showing him the attention, all that could have easily fueled in him an arrogance and a selfish ambition to make him think he was a big shot, which would have done what? It would have pulled him away from his consecration. From his holiness, right? And on the other hand, you know, all that criticism he had to endure, that could have easily made him lose heart and shrink away from what he was consecrated or set apart to do as well. Are y'all seeing this? So, listen, I can tell you from personal experience that both applause and criticism can be equally damaging to a person's consecration or we can say their identity. So, so listen, if we're not careful, this can cause damage, okay? Think about it this way. The applause of people, we all know, yay, so it's like this. It's like the applause of people is so powerful, it has the ability to puff a person up so much so that deceives them into believing that they're worthy of the praise they're receiving. More than likely, we've all done it, right? Like if you've ever played sports and you made a really good play, if you, if you closed the cell, if you finished the house you are building, like, we've all done it in some way, right? Somebody says, great job, and we're like, I know it. <laughs> right? I'm the man. I'm the woman, right? Yeah, right? Okay, so anyways, I, so I think at the end of the day, man, that applause certainly has the ability to squash our level of consecration. Okay, and on the other hand, people's criticism has an undeniable ability to tear a person down to the point that can deceive them into believing they're completely worthless. I hope you're seeing how the opinions of people are really... Uh, they're not good. Yeah, I would say it like that, right? So listen, I guess if anything I'm trying to say is this, is that the devil doesn't really care which way you fall. He just wants you to fall, yeah. right? If he can get you in pride, he'll get you in pride. If he can get you in, in insecurities and inferiorities, he'll get you there too, right? So, so listen, for those two reasons, if a person's identity isn't firmly settled in Jesus, applause or criticism can do a number on you. Now, thankfully, John wasn't that kind of guy. Watch this. Hang tight with me. John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Remember, consecrated people know who they are, but they also know who they're what? Who they're not, right? So it says, now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. It says, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah, which means they were asking if he was. He said, I'm not the Messiah. Now, I don't know about you, but I've thought about this. Like how many people would have listened to what all those people were saying and thought to themselves, you know, I, I never really thought about any of that. But but you know, now that you mentioned it, maybe I am. <laughs> so, but thankfully, here's John. He didn't take the bait because it goes on to say, they asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He's answered, No. So here's what I'm getting at, man. If there was ever a time when the crowd's praise could have become louder than the voice of God in John's life, it was right here. But it didn't, right? Because why? Because he was firmly fixed on who he was and who he was not. Watch. Let's look at together. Verse 22. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? If you have a Bible, you should underline that line. If you don't have a Bible... You should always bring your Bible to church. All right, here we go. So what do you say about yourself? No, we're talking about identity, right? What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, we've already seen it several times, I'm the voice of the one calling in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord. So notice how he responded. He simply repeated what he knew the one who had consecrated him had said about him in the first place. Right? In other words, I am who God says I am. That's it, right? And so I think this, when we as God's people don't already know, we're not already confident in the fact that we've been consecrated by God like John, we tend to forget who we are supposed to be. And the danger of this is when we forget who we are called to be, we obviously find a sinkhole in our identity. Like it happens, we typically end up taking the bait, we become someone we're not supposed to be, and that not who we're supposed to be tends to, you know, hinge upon people's opinions of ourselves. And what happens? Let's be honest. We become who people want us to be so we can avoid their criticism and we can gain their approval or their praise. And at the end, what happens? Our level of consecration tends to suffer for it. Here's a takeaway for you. I think when we look at the life of John the Baptist, we discover that there's something so precious and so secure about settling into and becoming content with who we're supposed to be. In other words, it's like, this is who I am, nothing more and nothing less. What God says or who God says I am, man, that's enough for me. So everybody look at me really quick. Please, please. Is who God says you are, is that enough for you? Is it really enough? I, I'm going to be honest. I don't think most of us are content in that. They're always trying to wrestle and contend and fight and try to find a way to become something, become something, become something. And a lot of times it's contrary to what the Word says about us. There's a simplicity in what the Bible says about us and who we are, and I think, man, if we could get to the point of just being content there, and who we are, we'll be content everywhere else, right? Like, if I could say it this way, like, first and foremost, I'm a child of God, okay? I'm married to Jennifer, and I got five kids, okay? And people would love to say, but but don't you pastor a church? I do, but that's my assignment. It's not who I am, Right, because there's going to come a day when I'm no longer the pastor of this church. And God willing, I will still be the husband to Jennifer and the father to those five amazing kids. Am I making sense? I'll still be a child of God. So I think sometimes we we, we get off and we need to get that right. Amen. If we're going to be emotionally healthy and spiritually healthy, we need to get it right. We, we can't wrap ourselves up in someone else's opinion, someone else's calling, someone else's gifting, someone else's title, someone else's position or assignment, right? i, I got to like be all right with who I am, okay? So I, and let me say it to you this way. I don't, have to be, I don't have to think more highly of myself than I ought to, nor do I go the other end spectrum and think more lowly of myself than I ought to. Like I'm, I'm good in Jesus, amen? Amen. All right, so, so with that in mind, once again, what are we talking about? The next few weeks, we're going to hopefully get along with Jesus. And and can we maybe just say, Holy Spirit, could you speak to me? Is there anything that you want to show me about my level of consecration when it comes to the the area of my identity? Is there anything there that you would like to change? Like, have I believed a lie? Am I living from a lie that you want to shine your light on? Amen? So if you're curious today and you're like, okay, PQ, that's cool, but what does the iceberg look like in that area? It, It looks exactly like this what the Word of God says about you, right? The, the, more you, the more you learn the Word of God, the more you meditate on the Word of God when it comes to your identity, uh, the more of your God-given identity will emerge. Like So you can maybe ask yourself, okay, how much? what's the percentage of my iceberg that's above surface in this area? Am I operating all 5% of my God-given identity? Am I 10% of my God-given identity? 20%, 50%, 75%? Lord, like, where am I at? Am I making any sense, y'all? All All right, last area, calling. I think we can all agree that that John had an obvious uh, call, right? And he was unswerving in a sense of purpose, uh, you know, of walking in that call. And, And I think, you know, we can all see that, man, this guy knew he was called to prepare the way for Jesus, and he never backed down from it. So while that's extremely noteworthy, uh, there's two other qualities that I want to highlight here. Okay, I don't want to talk about just your traditional calling, and to do this, I want to I want to actually go back to John 3 again, and I'm going to show you two pieces of our calling that we should recognize and we should be walking in. Here we go, John 3. Y'all hang with me. I'm almost done. It says, so John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people, and everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. Watch this. John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you I am not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. The way I read the Bible, I think John could have easily resisted what was taking place there. He could have acted like these people belonged to him. He could have dug his heels in. He could have refused to, to let the notoriety slip away. But once again, that's not what happened. And, and so let me just ask you this. Have you ever wondered why John didn't cause a scene? Why well, he didn't make a fuss? He didn't throw a conniption fit. He didn't have a pity party, Right. I believe it's because he understood that at the heart of every calling from God, there's a key word that you always find. And it's the word called stewardship. See, because of this, I think John knew that the crowds of people who were leaving him, they didn't belong to him in the first place. Right? They were simply under his care. And until Jesus came, basically he was just responsible for them. But the moment Jesus came to gather them, then no problem. He was more than happy to hand them over. Why? Because he never held on to them in the first place, right? And so, so to bring this into our world, I think a lot of times uh, in our society we are taught to possess and own things and even people sometimes, right? We have a possessive mentality, and so I think when we feel like that we own something, maybe it's a position at work, uh, maybe it's our own money, right? Whatever it is, maybe it's a person. I think we have a tendency when we think we own something, we tell ourselves we have to protect it at all costs, and we got to fight for them at all costs. And I want you to know that, man, once again, if it be your career, if it's your gifting, or if it's another person, man, all of those things, if you have those emotions and those thoughts about those things, that is a sinkhole in your life. You own nothing. Jesus gave you everything, right? So, So listen, whatever we have, once again, whoever we have in our lives, What are we then? If we don't own it, we're stewards of it. And that includes our call. The gifts of the Spirit that you have aren't even yours. They were given to you. That's what my Bible says. Salvation you have, it was a free gift. There's nothing, guys, in the kingdom of God that we own. What a freeing place to be. Amen? So, listen, as a steward, I think this. John knew that he had one priority. It's another piece of our calling that I that I hope we all grab, is found in John 3, verse 29. He said this, It is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, as his best man, I'm filled with joy at his success. That's what John is saying. So, so think about it. What's the purpose of a best man? It's to simply stand up there beside the groom and make sure all the attention's upon him. Please let this sink in. See, I think John knew it would be absolutely foolish for him to all of a sudden, you know, whatever, turn all the attention of those wedding guests, because remember, Jesus came, right? Wedding guests, inviting us to the wedding, right? The, the, the lamb, right? So, so in other words, it would have been foolish for him to try to get all their attention, turn it back on him, because that's not what he's there for. That's not what a best man does. And so listen, I think if y'all can all understand and all hear what I'm saying today, is man, the reality is that so many of us live our lives, me included, that go, you know what, we want the attention. Something goes well. Look at me. Something goes bad. <laughs> right? But 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 we like attention, right? It's like how often do we hear somebody openly? Man, and, and God convicted me. I did this for years. I would say negative things about myself because I wanted attention. Like, there was a piece of me, if I pointed out, maybe it'll disarm you and, and you'll recognize, you know, in other words, I'll go ahead and tell you before you recognize that I messed up. But then there came a time, no, 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 I, oh, no, you're not that. No, you're not that. Oh my, that was, that's embarrassing to say that now. <laughs> Right or, or something goes well, and you're like, man, you did a great job. Yeah, I know it. Thank you, man. Am I making sense, y'all? So if you can, look, it's not my job to be the Holy Spirit, but just kind of like to, to fill in the blanks in your own, not, own life. Like, where are you trying to gain all the attention? Where are you trying to? In, in essence, what happens is is Jesus is stand there, and we're like this. <laughs> Notice me. Yeah. So years ago, I, I had an opportunity. I, I took some kids from a uh, youth group, a youth pastor, and um, I took them over to this really small youth camp. And, and I remember, you, you know, whatever, God moved. And, and we were sitting there in the altar call. We were praying for folks. And there was this guy that slipped up on stage. Uh, he was a guest to the speaker. And he grabbed his little guitar and, and he plugged it in and he started playing. And he started singing Keith Green's old song, Oh, Lord, You're Beautiful. And the presence of God was already good, but it went like. And I walked out that night and I was talking to the guy that preached. His name was Adam. And I was like, I was like, man, what what was that guy's name? Like, who is that? He just started laughing. He goes, man, every place I go and I invite him and he gets up and he does his thing. Nobody ever remembers his name. Don't think they can ever remember is how God showed up. That's the way we need our lives to be. Amen? That's not about us, that's about him, and they just know Jesus is there. Amen? Amen. So, so with that in mind, like, in these areas of understanding stewardship and being, a, being basically, uh, you know, a groomsman, if you will, for the Lord, like, what are some questions that you could be asking the Lord over the next few weeks to go, God, you know, you know how well am I doing at that? Is there anything that you want to reveal to me in that? Like, is there anything that that you want to change about my calling and change about how I'm living my life in those areas? I think if we ask, he'll speak to us. Amen? Amen. All right, so let me land with this. Have you ever wondered how John ended up this way? Because I think what happens is a lot of times we read the Bible and we go, oh, well, Gabriel said that. Well, it must have automatically happened. He wasn't a robot, he had a free will, right? So, So, how did his. Character, his consecration, calling, how did it get molded in him? Like, what allowed this guy to look at his identity and the situations around him differently than everybody else? Like, what caused that? Now, I, I think there's two things that I would point to. The first one is this, and I just say this for the parents in the room. The dude had a godly parents, first and foremost. And I think his parents, who theologians believe died when he was still young, clearly spent time telling him who he was called to be. He had to make the connection that he was the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Somehow, God probably, yes, spoke to him. But at the same time, I think his father told him. Okay? So there's something about declaring over our children, hey, here's who God's called you to be. Now, obviously, the most uh, you know, clear answer is because God. That's how he turned out the way he was. Um, but, but where did God choose to form him? The Bible clearly says that he used the desert or the wilderness to do it. Because it says in the Bible that the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, why would God choose a wilderness? I'm saying this because what I'm trying to encourage you to do over the next couple of weeks. Why would God choose a desert? Most of us run away and go, desert. Oh, that's dry. That's scary. That's, oh, no thank you. We'll avoid that at all costs. No, no, no. I think God seemed to the desert because nobody else was there. What am I saying? I'm saying sometimes it's hard for us to hear God in the middle of a crowd. And sometimes he tries to isolate us and put us in a position where nobody's around so we can actually hear from heaven. Amen? So often the reason we're not here from God is because we're too busy being around others or creating noise in our lives so we're not hearing God. And, and so I think God drew him in the desert so He could speak to him. And it was there that he began to, you know stamp basically on side of him, uh, you know, uh, a perspective of not only the times, but the world of religion, right, uh, of the purpose of God, of history. Like, I think God was speaking to him, and I think God came alongside of him, gave him this, this sensitivity and this courage that would prepare him to do what he was called to do. And I think if we're willing to isolate, if you will, or to, or to find a place of solitude for ourselves, God will begin to do the same things for us. Because if you, if you actually look at it and you go, okay, here's, here's John. Well, what did his father do? His father was a priest. What, what lineage was his mom from? She was from Aaron. That's pretty good lineage there. So who should John have been? He should have been a priest in the Pharisaical system. But, you know, but there was something. He went and got along with God, if I out know how he was supposed to be and how he was supposed to do ministry and do what God called him to do instead of just become what everybody else expected. But you got to hear from God. Amen? So at the end of the day, what should we be considering? What should we be allowing the Lord to evaluate in our lives? Like, what does he want to do? Like, let's give him room. Amen? Amen. Can you stand to your feet, please? Father, I thank you for every person that's here. Lord, I, I thank you, just even as we said at the top, not to repeat ourselves, but to simply draw our attention to things that that more than likely every one of us in this room uh, you know, resemble that iceberg and we resemble that sinkhole. And Jesus, there's things that you're wanting to bring to the surface. There's the good things that you deposit in us. There's piece of who you say we are. There's gifts that you've given us. There's callings that you've given us. There's things that you want to call us up higher in. And Father, we simply are asking today, God, that you'd begin to speak to us and you'd reveal what those things are. And Lord, we also ask Uh, God, the areas that maybe we're depleted, where there's deficiencies, where there's weakness and and just things in our character uh, and even in our lifestyle of consecration and our calling where there's sinkholes. Father, we're asking in Jesus name that you begin to fill those things up. And so, Lord, I'm asking for every one of my brothers and sisters in the room. God, if there's a lie that they have believed from the enemy in any one of these areas, God, I pray that you would shine your light and you'd reveal truth to them in Jesus name. Father, give us the courage over the next few days and even the next few weeks to go find that spot, the discipline to go find that spot. and just simply to get quiet before you and say, Lord, would you speak? God, would you help us to slow down? Would you help us to find that place called rest? And would you help us find a place where we just hear from you? Because, God, we honestly believe one word from you can change everything. God, we can hear a thousand sermons and they won't even move us. But Lord, if you say one word, God, it'll change us forever. And so, Lord, would you help us to get quiet? It may not be in a physical desert. It may be sitting at our, you know, kitchen table with a cup of coffee and a journal. Uh, Or God, it may be just going on a hike somewhere and sitting on the top of one of the mountains around here. God, whatever it is, wherever it is, Father, we simply ask we would put ourselves in a position. So you can speak. Father, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram for encouragement in your walk with God and to receive updates on events happening at The Anchor. Have a great week and God bless.